Revelation chapter 6 and beginning with verse 12. says, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? In Matthew chapter 24, we see many parallels to this passage in Revelation. Last week, we began an examination of Matthew chapter 24, and I intend, with the Lord's help, to conclude this today. But as we see, Revelation... Six, Matthew 24, again, as I mentioned, there, there are many parallels, and that's one of the reasons we wanted to jump over at Matt, to Matthew 24 and examine this. This is oftentimes called the Olivet Discourse. Jesus there was preaching these things on the Mount of Olives to his disciples, explaining to them details. As we looked at this last time, we noticed, first of all, that As they went out of the temple, Jesus and the parallel passages teach us that upon his disciples saying, see basically the grandeur of this temple, Jesus said, I tell you that there's a time coming, not one stone is going to be left standing on another. And that would have been a shocking statement to the disciples. There they are looking at this temple and the beauty of the temple and all these sacrifices and everything that's going on in it. And Jesus throws a monkey wrench in their little moment there and says, I'm telling you, this whole thing's going to be wiped out. Well, as I mentioned last time, Jesus is not only the prophet of whom all the prophets spoke, but he is also a prophet in his own right as he predicted the fall of the temple, which took place in AD 70 when the Roman army besieged Jerusalem. Now the disciples then ask him some questions in verse 3 and say, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And it seems that they are connecting, at least in their minds, the destruction of the temple that Jesus had just mentioned with the final return of Christ and with the end of the age. Jesus spoke oftentimes of The ages, the two ages, and we've looked at that from the pulpit, this age and the age to come. And so they seem to be connecting all of that in their mind. Now, as Jesus goes on and as we look at the structure of this passage, as we did last week, this by way of review, what I think that we see here is that in verses 4, 
through 14, Jesus gives some general statements that characterize this age. The scriptures say this age is a present evil age, that this age is characterized by death, that this age is characterized by sin. And so he's giving general characteristics that flow throughout this age, not specific to any period of time, but general throughout this age. And then I do believe that in verses 15 through 21, though, he focuses a little bit more narrowly on an event which will happen in this age, in the life of the disciples, within most of their lifetimes, and that is AD 70 and the destruction of the temple. And then he goes back to mentioning again things that are general characteristics of this age, and he uses a literary device, an inclusio. So you notice he starts off by talking about, in verse 4, Take heed that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. But then in verse 23, he goes back to this again, and he says, Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it, for false Christ and false prophets will rise. So at that point, he's discussing the things in a little more detail that he had mentioned previously, sandwiched in between then specific events about A.D. 70 and the fall of the temple. And then he goes on to talk specifically about some things that will happen at his final return. Okay? So notice some things that are characteristic of this present evil age. One, false Christs. People who will rise up and say, I am the anointed of God, follow me. But yet they're false. They're teaching a false gospel, a false doctrine. Two, wars and rumors of wars. Three, natural disasters, famines, pestilences, and earthquakes. Four, tribulation and death and being hated for God's people. For the sake of Christ. Five. Lawlessness abounding. And the love of many growing cold. That's referring to I believe apostasy. People who have expressed a faith in Christ. But then abandoned the faith. As they face hardships in life. Oftentimes this happens. And then the gospel of the kingdom then being preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end would come. Now, something that I pointed out last time is that, as D.A. Carson says, sometimes preachers of a rather exuberant but thoughtless mold will say that these signs, such as wars and rumors of wars, etc., are given to show us that Christ's coming is at hand. He says, but notice the text, it's the opposite. Because notice what it says in verse 5. Many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ, will deceive many. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. These things aren't being given as signs that the end is absolutely here. Jesus said, the end is not yet. And then you go down a little bit farther in verse 8, and he says, all these are the beginning of sorrows. And that ties in with the Jewish 
concept of the birth pangs of the Messiah, that before Messiah would come, that there would be contractions. (laughs) I'm waiting for contractions back here. (laughs) If my wife signals me from back there, I'm going out this door, okay? And the Lord bless you all. But... You, you notice this, though. We, we sometimes, and many of us have probably heard that, oh, well, wars and rumors of wars, you know, everything going on out there in the world, and you watch the news, and, you know, false Christ rising up, and people being persecuted. That's evidence that Jesus coming must be here. He's going to come in our generation. Jesus is saying, the end is not yet. He gives those things not as evidence that the end is almost near. I mean, can you see that? He says not. Circle it in your Bibles. That's what he's saying. What's the point? What's the point? The point is, he's telling people, don't grow discouraged when you see wickedness abounding in the world. Don't grow discouraged when you see all of these terrible things happening. It doesn't, one, it doesn't mean that you've missed Jesus and somehow he's not coming or you've missed him. Doesn't mean God has lost control. This is part of what you should expect in this present evil age. That's what Jesus is saying here. And there are those who scoff and say, well, where's the promise of Christ coming? Look over at 2 Peter. And chapter 3. In chapter 2, it outlines false teachers and their depravity and their unrighteousness. And it says, But it has happened to them, in verse 22 of chapter 2, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit. Have you ever seen a dog? eat its own barf, saying these false preachers, false Christs, false prophets are like a dog that goes and eats its own vomit. The Bible's a warm and fuzzy book, isn't it? (laughs) And then he says in verse 3, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. And by the way, in Hebrews chapter 1, it says we're in the last days and we've been in the last days since the completed work of Christ. We're not waiting for the last days to come or we didn't just now enter the last days. Those have been going on since Christ. So, The last days of this age began with Christ's completed work. And we've been in that for 2,000 years. Knowing this first, scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. So these people are looking at the creation saying, Everything's just continuing on. There's nothing really changing in the world. So where's the promise of Christ coming? Well, first of all, it's pointed out this. They willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which word or which the world that then existed perished being flooded with the water. He's like, they're just, you know, very conveniently forgetting the fact the world hasn't continued on forever 
as it has always been. It was once totally wiped out with a flood. But the heavens and earth which are now are preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. There's that day coming. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What's being pointed out here? People are saying, oh, well, he hasn't come back yet. He hasn't come back yet. He's never coming back. No, God's on a different timetable than we are. And the reason given here that he hasn't come back yet is that he has not brought yet all of his elect to repentance. God will not return till every one of his elect children is effectually called, is regenerated, is converted, is justified, is adopted, and is initially sanctified. He will not come back until that is accomplished. Furthermore, as we've already seen in the cry of the martyrs in Revelation, he will not come back until every one of his children whom he has appointed to die for the testimony of Jesus Christ has died. Now the thing is, we don't know when that is. And thus... In Matthew 24, Jesus says no one knows the day or the hour. We simply don't know. Now, I I do want us to think reasonably from the scriptures. We, again, we don't look at what's going on over in the Middle East and we don't look at wars and rumors of wars and say, oh, there's another earthquake, so Jesus has to be coming back in my generation. God's not on the same time frame we are. 1,000 years is as a day to the Lord. It could be 10,000, 20,000, 40,000 years before Jesus comes back. I can't know that. You can't know that. And there have been many people who have led people astray by making predictions about Christ's coming. And And it's like, What about no one knows the day or the hour? Do you not understand? It's foolishness. It's foolishness. Now, I, I I do want us to understand, and as we continue on in this message today, I do want us to understand that God wants us to be ready. He wants us to be watching because as we're going to see, as we look at some of these parables and as we look at the statements about Noah's day and some taken and some left, that the emphasis on in Scripture is that the coming of Christ will come with a suddenness that will catch many off guard. And that it will come at a time when everyday life is just Carrying on. So even that points to the idea that we don't look around us and and see all of these signs and put it all together and say, oh, well, it's got to be this month. Oh, it's got to be next month. You know, it's got to be within my generation. No, 
The fact of the matter is, people have been doing that since the first century, and everyone has been wrong every time up to this point. We think, we think it's unique for people to say, nope, Jesus is coming back and he's got to come back in my lifetime. That's been going on throughout history. You know, at Y2K, there were all kinds of people saying, okay, Y2K, Jesus is coming back and finding some kind of numbers in the Bible and stuff to support it. You know what they did at Y1K? The exact same thing. So, I'm not trying to discourage us from being ready and thinking that Christ's return could be at any time. But at the same time, I don't think that the scriptures teach that we have all of these surefire signs and we can line them all up and dial in the day. Not at all. So, general characteristics there in verses 4 through 14. Now, specific characteristics, I believe, in answer to the question about when will this be, namely, the destruction of the temple. And as we look at these, there's some things that are so direct and so specifically focused that I think that it is helpful to see it in this light. Verse 15, Therefore when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath for there will, then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Now, what evidence is that this is more specifically focused at this point? One, notice it mentions specifically Judea. It isn't speaking broadly of the entire globe. It's a specific region. It mentions the abomination of desolation. That's a reference back to the book of Daniel. Back in the book of Daniel, there's the prophecy of the 70 weeks. And it says there that a covenant will be made in the midst of of that last week and the abomination of desolation that causes desolation will be seen. Now, I don't have time this morning to look at those 70 weeks. That would take an entire sermon in and of itself. But suffice it to say that strong evidence indicates that those 70 weeks were completed in the work of Jesus and then that abomination which causes desolation is referencing the destruction of the temple, the Roman armies besieging Jerusalem and those things that took place there. Okay? Let, let's look back for just a moment at Daniel so we, we can at least put eyes on the text. Uh, again, there's not time to, to preach this entire text or message. But... In Daniel, and 
in chapter 9. And let's begin with verse 24. Daniel 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Now, this is speaking about weeks of years. So it's 490 years total. Each day in this formula represents a year. So 70 weeks is 490 days are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Those things took place in the completed work of Christ. That's what he came to accomplish. Now therefore, and un- or know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem... Until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, which equal there the 79. Until Messiah the Prince. Who's Messiah the Prince? That's Christ. Saying until his coming. Now, the street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off but not for himself. What's that speaking about? His crucifixion. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. What happened in AD 70? The city and the temple were destroyed by the Romans. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he the one who would come with the Romans, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, the 70th week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. That reference is to God, bringing an end to sacrifice and offering. What happened in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed? The Jews were no longer able to sacrifice in the temple. It was finished! Christ had completed the sacrificial work. He made the one sacrifice that was sufficient to take away sins when all of the blood of bulls and goats could never do so. And that was fully brought to an end in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple and the whole priestly economy and the Jewish economy. And the book of Hebrews alludes to this. When you look at Hebrews chapter 8 and it's talking about Christ as the mediator of the new covenant, it speaks about the old covenant and it says that it is decaying, growing old, and ready to vanish away. You see, Christ completed a work, inaugurated the new covenant, and then upon the destruction of the Jewish temple, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, the old covenant, and all the last vestiges of it, We're gone. The old administration was out and the new in. You see how this brings glory to Christ and his work? This is pointing to Christ and what he would accomplish. Okay. And notice this. 
In verse 27, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. Even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. A reference to the abomination of desolation. All of this which takes place within the generation of those alive at the time Christ completed his work. And the timing works out perfectly as you look at the dating of all of this. We've, we've done that in our men's study. We don't have time again to go into all the specifics of it. But the timing of those 490 years works out exactly. So what, what happened in... As a, as a result of the counter-reformation, as a result of... Roman Catholics being really concerned about the Reformation, which we've been studying and thinking about, and many of the Reformers rising up and saying the Pope is Antichrist. A Jesuit priest named Francisco Ribera wrote a work which was published by the Roman Catholic Church, which stated for the first time in written history that there is a gap between the 69th and the 70th week and that Jesus didn't really complete these things. We're waiting for this all to happen. And they could then conveniently get around the idea that the Pope is Antichrist or the Antichrist because he couldn't be referenced here because that hasn't happened yet. Now, just to give us a little bit of detail of the history, the most common view of eschatology today is that there's a gap between the 69th and 70th week and that we're waiting for these things yet to be fulfilled. Just so you know the history, that was first posited by a Roman Catholic and published by the Roman Catholic Church in opposition to the Reformers and what they believed. Doesn't make it wrong, but it's an interesting history. <laughs> okay? And throughout church history, there have been those who have seen this as being fulfilled in Christ. And in Daniel chapter 7, when it speaks of one appearing before the Ancient of Days and being given a kingdom and dominion and power and a kingdom that will never end, people looked at that and said, that is Jesus and He is King and He is reigning right now because He has been given the name which is above every name. He has been given. And then Jesus, in the Great Commission, told His disciples, all authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. And so, throughout the ages, God's people have looked at that and said, Christ has been given this kingdom he is reigning over his kingdom now, and one day he will come and he will reign upon this earth. Well, tying this back into what I was mentioning in verse 15, I think we're seeing some specific things Jesus is focusing on in AD 70. The abomination of desolation. So that abomination that brings about desolation, the temple was defiled as the Roman armies surrounded that area. Now, there was an initial fulfillment of the abomination of desolation in history with one Antiochus Amphiphanes who 
during that period between when the Old Testament was completed and the New Testament was written in Jewish history, this pagan king sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple in order to defile that sacred place. And then began the revolt of the Maccabees following that. So there was an initial fulfillment of abomination of desolation, but like so many prophecies in the Old Testament, there can be an initial fulfillment in history, and then there can be something that is pointed to farther on in history, which will also be a fulfillment of that. And as Jesus says here, clearly this is one of those instances because he says, therefore, and notice this, when you see the abomination of desolation. So again, I'm making the case this is very specific. One, the specific region, Judea. And notice he says, to these men sitting there listening to him, when you see this. And furthermore, I think this makes great sense of Jesus' words farther down in verse 34, assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. So you see, we're trying to deal with these time texts. This generation, you, the region of Judea. So I think this is a specific focus here. And Jesus is giving a very gracious warning to these people. And the words of several early historians indicate that by the time the Roman armies had surrounded Jerusalem, the Christians, remembering Christ's warning, had already fled the city. And they did not get trapped in the absolute bloodbath that ensued. Okay? Josephus writes about much of this in his work, The Jewish Wars. Notice Jesus says in verse 16, let those who are in Jerusalem flee to the mountains. It's recorded in history that the Christians fled to Pella. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. They had flat roofs at that time. This is a picture of don't even go down off of your house. Jump from roof to roof to get out of the city fast. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Don't go back and pack your suitcase. Get out. Stay out. You're out in the field. You're outside the city. Stay out and flee. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Honey, I hope we don't have to flee like this. Watkins back there and... uh, Shrey and family hope we all don't have to flee like this. You know, you know, under the circumstances, this would be a very difficult time and circumstance. That's what Jesus is pointing to. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Obviously, harder to flee in the winter. On the Sabbath day, the city was closed. It was shut down and the gates were closed. No commerce going in or out. So it'd make it more difficult to get out of the city. Now, notice this, and, and this is... One, and, and this is a difficult text. You know, I acknowledge this, and there are different views that are plausible, and each view has strengths or weaknesses. But notice it says, Then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, 
nor ever shall be. And some will say, well, that's just impossible that what took place there in Jerusalem during this time was the greatest tribulation and greater than any that would ever be. Now, in regards to the scope of the entire globe, yes, there were fewer people killed in that event than, say, in World War I and World War II combined over a wide, wide geographical area. But when it comes down to a concentrated area, one region, one city, and the bloodbath that ensued and literally entire families, entire peoples being wiped out. Josephus writes about this and the, and the siege of Jerusalem is so horrific that, that people were literally, mothers were boiling their babies and eating them out of starvation. This was a horrific, horrific bloodbath. And the Jews leading up to the siege of of the city by the Romans, the Jews themselves were in a civil war and they were slaughtering one another. Even within the very temple complex, the Jews were fighting one another and their bodies were falling down, pierced by swords and spears and blood flowing over those paving stones. And then the Roman Empire, Roman army under General Titus sets up the siege and people are starving and dying within. It was a horrific horrific time in which the Jews that were in that city none escaped. Now again I've given evidence as why I think this was a more localized the timing of abomination of desolation as I've said the region of Judea, Judea Jesus says when you see these things But then notice this as well, even the statement of Jesus, for there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. If we we say this is part of a great tribulation period that's going to happen before Jesus returns, so like a seven-year tribulation period that's future to us, why would Jesus say nor shall ever be? Afterwards, because there's not going to be any great tribulation after that, according to the dispensational schema. You see, I don't think it would make much sense for him to say, nor will ever be after that. Okay? Now, As we switch down to verse 22, I think at 22 we begin to focus again on the general characteristics of this era. And we have to answer the question, what does Jesus mean when he says those days? Notice in verse 22, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Now, is Jesus talking about what he just mentioned, the specific great tribulation? I don't think so. I think now he's speaking again about generally the persecution which will face believers throughout this evil age. And here's why I believe that. Notice he says, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. The broadness of that statement, no flesh, that's not just talking about no flesh in one particular region. Because you see, During this great tribulation time, it was only in Judea, and it was only focused 
primarily on this one city. But Jesus is saying, unless the persecutions and the famines and everything that come upon this world in this age, generally speaking, unless Christ returns and that is shortened, ultimately all flesh will die. And then notice he also says this, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Again, that seems to be very broadly focused on this group called the elect. That's all God's elect. Not just the elect in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, remember history? The Christians had already fled the city and were not trapped inside and destroyed by that great tribulation. So I think those are two evidences. Jesus is talking broadly now again. No flesh would be saved if persecutions continue on and on and on. But for the sake of God's elect, Christ is going to come back and He is going to make things right. I think that's what's being spoken of here. Then, if anyone says to you, here focused again generally on characteristics of this evil age. If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. I've mentioned this to you before. As as a little child, I had this fear kind of in the, the pit of my heart that, What if Jesus is out there and he's preaching and he comes and I don't believe that it's really him? What is Jesus telling his disciples? If anybody ever tells you, Jesus is here, do not believe them. Blanket statement. You guys can take this to the bank. If anybody ever says... Jesus has come back. He's here. You can look at that person and say, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus is not here. Because when he comes, ain't nobody going to miss him. Absolutely impossible. It is going to be such a glorious parousia. Christ will come. The shout of the archangel The voice of the trumpet. Christ will set foot on the earth. No one will miss it anywhere. Impossible. Absolutely impossible. And that's being given as encouragement to the elect. (laughs) You will not miss him. And if anybody arises and says, I'm Jesus. No way. You're the devil, a demon. For the spawn of Satan. And you need to repent. Throughout this passage, it's replete with comforts for the people of God. It's saying, you're going to suffer. You're going to be persecuted. I mean, oh, wait a minute, but didn't, didn't Jesus come so that All religions could join hands and we could all sing, let there be peace on earth. You know, everybody. No, Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. 
And he said, households are going to be divided against one another. Why? Because if you are saved, you are a saver of life unto life. But to those who are perishing, you stink like death. Because you expose them as being spiritually dead and depraved. Why did they hate Jesus so much when he did so much good? Because he exposed them. He exposed them. They're saying, we are of our father Abraham. And he says, your father is the devil. Because if you were truly children of Abraham, you would do the works of your father. And you've rejected me and my father is God. Jesus exposed them. And all you have to do is proclaim the gospel of Christ and live according to God's law and you will expose unbelievers. You can, you can present the gospel in the most winsome way. You can show the most sacrificial love. You can cut their lawns and bring them food. But the reality is, if you're truly living for Christ and truly giving the gospel, you will be saying, you are a wicked sinner, you are damned to hell, unless you bow the knee to King Jesus. And people don't like that when their father is Satan. And it exposes something to them that they're trying to smash down in their own hearts. They can see the very power and attributes of God in this created world, and they seek to smash down any knowledge of God in their hearts. And when you shine that light in, you expose what they're desperately, like wild animals in fear, gnawing at, trying to crush down. You're exposing that, and they won't like it. I mean, here, here's the reality. As we think about our, our world right now, and I'm saying the world that we live in immediately in this, in this United States of America and what's taking place here. If you take a stand and speak the truth in love, there are certain topics that you get on and you speak the truth in love and people are going to hate you for it. One of those is, and, I, and this is where one of, the, one of the big battles in our generation is coming in, and that's the battle of identity. All right? You know, in this battle of worldviews, in the battle of somebody's personal identity, how they identify themselves, that they are not just saying, you're entitled to your opinion as to whether or not I can choose to be a man or a woman or a dog or whatever else. You're entitled to your opinion about that, and I'm entitled to my opinion, just give me the freedom to do what I choose to do. That's not what they're saying. You realize that. They are saying, you are unloving, bigoted, wicked, and we want by coercion at law to force you to celebrate me and my complete foolishness and mental illness and delusion. That's what they're saying. Just listen to them. Just watch the interviews. That is absolutely what they're saying. Bruce Jenner 
comes out and says, I am now a woman. And he's given an award for being the most courageous person. And anybody who stands up and says, you are not a woman, and everything scientifically proves that. Every chromosome in your body proves that you're a man. And you are deluded and sick mentally to believe that you're a woman and you need help. You come out and say that, they're not going to say, oh, well, you're just entitled to your own opinion. And and why is that? Why is that? I've, I've thought about this. Why is it that people respond so viscerally to this issue? Why do they get so upset about this compared to certain other issues where they say, oh, that's okay, you can have your opinion, I'll have mine. And, and here's the thing. We all realize this. When it comes to someone personally attacking our identity, that is much more emotional and much more close to home than just somebody disagreeing with something that we do. If someone disagrees with who we are, it is much more intense and emotional than them just disagreeing with something we do. That makes sense? What if some, What if... You who devote devoted Christian had someone come to you and say, you are not a Christian. You are no child of God. You're deluded. If you're looking at your heart and you're resting in the work of Christ and everything else, that's going to be a lot more intense than them coming to you and saying something like, you know what, I, I disagree I disagree with your view that you have the right to keep and bear arms. Or what men, what if, what if they're coming to you and saying, you are, you're not a man, you're a woman. What are you talking about? I mean, most of us would probably shrug and say, like, you're crazy. You know, you're like totally. <laughs> um, you know, do you happen to have a, a business card with the uh, institution that you've just been released from? You know, I'm going to call them up and they can come get you and take you back. But, but you see what I'm talking about. So, so we're standing up and saying God's word and science say that if you identify as something that you are not, you're delusional. That you're mentally ill. And they're saying, no, this is who I am. How dare you tell me this is not who I am. I mean, so that's where that's one of the biggest battles that we face in this in this era. And literally, they want by law. And when we talk about by law, their you know views to be enshrined by law. We're talking about they want to by coercion force us to celebrate their view. Because when you talk about something being enshrined as law. How is law enforced? It's enforced with a gun. It's enforced by fines. It's enforced by prison. It's enforced by coercion. And there's times, obviously, for good laws and for the force of law to come and bear upon someone. But that's what they're saying. Anytime anybody says, I want something to be law, they're saying, I want this to be enforced by coercion. By physical force being used if necessary to see that someone complies. One of the battles that we face. Where, 
where is this going to go? I don't know. I don't know. There are some men, biblical scholars that I've listened to, and they're hopeful that since the world cannot function with people being able to choose an identity, that this is probably just going to peter out after a decade or two. But who knows? With the level of insanity that we're seeing, I, I don't know. But there could be a fair number of us that end up in prison or fined or whatever else as a result of just simply taking a stand on truth. Are you ready for that? Jesus is warning his people here and saying, don't, don't think this is unusual when it comes. I've said this again and again, and we'll keep seeing it through Revelation. God does not want us to think it's unusual when we suffer for him. We should not expect that the, the relative liberties and freedoms that have been recognized in our little world right here, in the Bible Belt, in the United States of America, are going to continue. We shouldn't expect that. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't promote them. <laughs> of course we should promote justice and righteousness and truth. And we should do it vigorously. I'm not saying that I want all of these wicked laws to be put in place. No, God forbid. But I am saying, if you think that this is the normal Christian life, what you're living right now, you're wrong. History proves you wrong. And current history proves you wrong. All you have to do is look around the world. Don't be surprised. That's what Jesus is saying. Are we ready? Are we ready for this? I have to ask myself this. Am I ready for this? Are we really ready as a congregation for these things to come upon us? Or do we like our comfort? Do we like our ease? Do we like our freedoms? Do we worship those to the point that when the pressure starts to come, we're going to bow to those instead of to Jesus? We need to be prepared. Children, be prepared. If you've committed to following Jesus Christ, you've made a commitment to die for him if he calls you to. Jesus said, unless someone takes up his cross and follows me daily, he is not worthy to be my disciple. And the cross there is not, I'm bearing the cross of cancer, I'm bearing the cross of heart disease, I'm bearing the cross of somebody looked at me cross-eyed when I said Jesus. That cross is the cross of persecution and execution because of acknowledging and standing for Christ and his word and refusing to back down. And Jesus says, we have to be willing daily to die to ourselves and our own sins and be willing to lay down our lives for him. Now, if this is, if this is scaring the snot out of you, don't forget that God also says that his mercies are new every morning. His grace is sufficient for us and he will give us the grace to stand. 
He doesn't say, I'm throwing you in with the wolves and you're on your own. Jesus jumped into that den before us and he died for us. And through his death, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk where he has walked. And through his example, he gives us the perfect example. And what does he say? Greater love has no man than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. And did Jesus practice what he preaches? Yeah. Are we ready for this? Here's the glorious thing. If you're one of God's elect, Jesus says here that false Christ and everything else will try and deceive even the elect if it were possible. If you're one of God's children, you will persevere. You will persevere. You will persevere. But as we think about the coming of Christ, as he mentions here, in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heaven will be shaken. I believe these are referring to the final coming of Christ in judgment in Revelation chapter 6 that we've already read. It's referring to the final return of Christ in judgment because there it says the great day of God's wrath is here. It doesn't just say a day of God's wrath. It says the great day of God's wrath is here. This then clearly speaks about the return of Christ because it says a sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Clearly speaking about the final return of Christ, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 speaks about the sound of the trumpet. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13 in the parable of the field, the angels would be the, the harvesters to go and gather together the elect. That Christ is going to come. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Here Jesus is referring back specifically to the events in AD 70. You see, he's going back and forth referring to different things. He's saying there are specific things that can be seen for AD 70, as, he's, as we've already outlined, because he also says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things t take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. There he's speaking about his final return. So he's answering specific questions, and he's going back and forth and, and answering those and giving details. And as we put the whole structure of the text together, I think it all begins to flow together. In verse 37, as the days of Noah were, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. His final return, he's speaking of. As in the days before the flood, they're eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. What was going on? Normal, everyday life. And then, boom, the flood comes. And who's taken away? You see, some have interpreted this passage and say this is talking about the secret rapture and it's talking about that God's people will be taken out of the world and others left. 
But it mentions the day of Noah. Who was taken in the day of Noah and who was left? The wicked were taken and Noah and his family were left on the earth. And what does it say? What's our admonition? Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. We should live watchfully because we don't know when Christ is coming back. So we need to live constantly awake and ready for his coming. Not living in drunkenness, not living in immorality. Be ready for he's coming at an hour you do not expect. You know the whole passage in 1 Thessalonians talking about Jesus coming as a thief and as a thief in the night? The idea there isn't silence and stealth because it says Jesus is going to come with a shout of an archangel and the sound of the trumpets. The idea is suddenness. And that's the same idea here. Suddenness. He's coming when you do not expect him to come. He's coming at a time when everyday life is just carrying on. People are eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage. And boom! Jesus comes back. (laughs) Now, one of the reasons I'm not a post-millennialist is because many passages like this indicate that this is an evil age. These these various things, the false prophets and the persecutions and everything are characteristic of this age. And then Christ comes back right in the middle of it when everybody's doing normal things and the world is just carrying on. Contrary to the idea that we've advanced now into a golden era when the entire world is Christianized. And I understand, you know, like the, the parables of, of the leaven or yeast in the, the loaf and the mustard seed, you know, growing to the tree. And I believe what those are speaking about is extent, not necessarily quality. How much yeast goes into a loaf of bread? It ends up permeating the whole loaf, but it's not that the yeast grows and you've got a loaf of yeast. But what happens? It permeates the whole loaf. Jesus said the gospel is going to go forth to all of the world. That's what that's talking about is the expansion of the gospel throughout the world. But that doesn't mean that the whole world is going to become Christianized. Okay? So I think those parables can be explained in that way. And then we have multiple statements And even such as in we looked at already in um, 2 Timothy, it says that before the end comes, there's going to be a great apostasy and a great falling away. And then we have passages like this with all these characteristics. We have statements that this age is an evil age. And at the end of this age, Christ comes. And there's not another age to follow this age, which is a golden age. So many reasons here, I think, in support of this. But does that mean... That we just pessimistically sit around and wring our hands and say, oh, I can't do anything for the glory of God. This world's going to hell in a handbasket. So my job is just to pull out and wait for Jesus to come. Absolutely not. We're to be watchful. We're to be ready. We're to be working. We're to realize that the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and all of God's elect are there and that the glory of God will cover the earth 
and that we should be promoting the spread of the gospel and the kingdom ethic throughout this world. And it's not a hopeless task. And that God has chosen. And this is part of God's sovereign plan. He has chosen to get much glory for himself by his children living as sojourners and pilgrims in a foreign land and even facing persecution and doing it with joy in their Savior. He's chosen that means to bring glory to himself. And that's what we, we live for. We live for. We, we can't ignore all the commands of Jesus because our eschatology thinks that Jesus' return could be imminent And so, you know, I'm going to take all my money, I'm going to sell my house and max out my credit cards and whatever else and go sit in the field and wait for Jesus to come. Or the idea that we can have no impact on this fallen world. Well, that would just simply be to fly in the face of everything Jesus has commanded us. And he's promised us that his gospel will be effectual. The money that you contribute and, and is distributed from this congregation, goes forth to two missionary families. There are more than that. There's four, four missionary families. But two of those missionary families are out in the middle of the jungle in Papua, Indonesia. And they went out there, and there weren't anyone in this tribe who were saved. Now there have been multiple converts, some of their own people being trained to pastor. There's a village there where they administer medication and have saved lives. And now, now the government of Papua, the very governor, is visiting that village so that they can see about helping with the work of, of medicine and saving lives. And you've contributed to all of that. The light has shone in a very dark place over there and continues to shine. And so we remain hopeful, we remain optimistic, and we know that God will be glorified and that we can trust in him no matter what takes place in this life. Well, may God bless the reading and study of his word and may we his people live for his glory in all that we do. Father, thank you for the time that we've had and pray that you'll bless your word to our hearts. And may we ultimately take away from your word may we ultimately have a proper understanding which brings much glory to Christ and may we live according to the admonitions of your word and Help us, Father, to, to be zealous for Christ and his work. Help us to be prepared for persecution and not little babies sucking on all of our comforts and pleasures and scared stiff of being ripped away from them. We have a treasure in Christ that cannot be taken away, O oh God. And may we live it. May people see that in us. 
And may, if you and your sovereign will bring hardship into our lives, may we praise you for the opportunity to shine forth your glory in such a way that people will look on and say, how is this possible? We pray this for the glory of Christ and not for our own glory. Amen.